is Otto, aka DJ Slowpoke, Spookus, the Phantom himself. If you were listening uh, last week, you didn't hear the first part because I put a uh, put in episode three last week with Thad McCracken. But if you listened a week before that, you got the first part of this interview, and we're picking up where we left off, basically. Um, separate recording here, though. We did this one uh, through our phones. And uh, so the audio quality is going to be a little different, but I think it's it's acceptable. You can hear what we're saying and uh, adds a certain element of uh, DIY here, which is appropriate. Um, so, yeah, enjoy episode four, part two. We go more into depth on the personalities that Henry has come in contact with and uh, also his theories on Bigfoot. And uh, I think you'll enjoy this one uh, even more than the first half. We really go we go deeper here, and uh, I think it's a fun ride. He's definitely in the mood to share his uh, experience with us and... Uh, I'm still greatly appreciative of that. For the rest of the Phantom Power experience, you can go to my Tumblr page. That is phantompowerpages.tumblr.com. And if you want to listen to any of the back episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com forward slash phantompowerradio. All right. Enjoy part two of my conversation with Henry Franzoni. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, calling you on my 
phone. This is phone to phone. But I put an app on my phone. Recording it. So oh, you are being recorded. Recording app on the phone. Yeah. Wow. Cool. <laughs> so, Streamlined technology, huh? It's legal as long as I tell you that. Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah, that's the Oregon law, I know, but is that the Washington law, too? I think so. I think it's, I think it's the same here. Huh. Got to get permission. Makes sense to me. Yeah, but... you, got, you got notification yeah, or something, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, well, good evening. Yes. Yes. A uh, fine good evening to you. Thank you. Um, I presume I... you wish to talk about the elusive questing beast, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, all those, all the uh, people surrounding that. Uh... You're interested. Well, you know. You may find it interesting that Renee DeHinde once told me many, many years ago that the story is actually the people looking for Bigfoot. It's not Bigfoot. And so Renee's insight led him to, in fact, acquire the rights and copyrights of a lot of significant Bigfoot stories. That's really? why he owned the still frame rights to the Patterson film. He actually owned the copyright to Patterson's book, and he owned the copyright to uh, oh, some other guy's book, too. Because Hinden was a businessman, and he would actually buy the rights to people's stories about Bigfoot. People, people themselves were the story. That's what he thought. I am I am in another camp. So. Right. I just find that very interesting. Yes, yes, but it is very self-referential. You know, that's the thing is it becomes the story because no one ever finds anything out, and so people just keep finding interesting ways to move past the problem <laughs> over yeah. and over and over again, and they don't actually get their grasp on the actual problem and so they just you know start talking about themselves i guess it's a human trait yeah yeah indeed and there's such a uh well i've seen i've lived through a, a huge expansion of the number of people that participate in the Talking about Bigfoot world. <laughs> Be interested. Yes. Camp, yeah. Yes, yes. You must you must appear plausible or you may not uh, be unchallenged. Must justify your plausibility at all times. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know, the people that uh I think what happens is when you confront the unknown and you come face to face with the unknown. You really just have yourself, you know, you, the things that you bring with you are just you and your weird 
idiosyncrasy. And so that becomes like <laughs> the story. <laughs> the story is you and your weird idiosyncrasy. And um, and yet, yeah, there's uh, I have a, I have a long history with Bigfoot researchers, and due to the nature of my opinions, I say mostly I've alienated and burned the bridges with just about all of them. Oh, good. Then we can talk about <laughs> talk about them freely. Yes, I have. Uh, Pretty much, yeah, burned pretty much every bridge. Yeah. Oh, well, it's just my nature, I suppose. But, um, yes, anyone in particular you wish to well, let's, talk about? Let's continue with the ending a little bit. I mean, that kind of surprises me that he was, uh, saw the human interest. The Hinden was a smart man. You know, he was actually, he had a native intelligence that was just, he had a high IQ. He was a smart guy. Right. But yeah, he uh he you know, those those old guys, they all staked out a different corner of the world. They all were in different camps. They put themselves under Hinden put himself in the camp where he uh yeah, he he basically was very pragmatic as a businessman. I mean, he just mm -hmm. wanted to buy up the copyrights for things, which he did. Well, he was he was uh, jerk poor for quite a while, wasn't he? I mean... Well, he, he always lived at the gun range, and he made his money by picking up lead bullets and melting them down and selling the recycled lead. And he, when I knew him late in his life, at the last portion of his life, he was still living at the gun range mm -hmm. in a trailer. <laughs> Actually, he had three trailers, but, you know, it, uh, it was always an adventure when you went to visit Rene, because you went to the gun range and you stayed in the trailer. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> one of the trailers had a chest in it with so many fantastic artifacts that um, you, you realize that the Hinden was was there. There's a uh, there's a moment in the Patterson film where Patty steps on a stick and the Hinden actually one day pulled out that stick and said, hey, this is the stick that Patty stepped on. And then it got used to confirm the height estimate we did on Patty, because I was I was part of uh, Jeff Glickman's analysis of the Patterson film, and uh, we had uh, he had estimated that the height was seven feet three inches, plus or minus one inch, and he had done all this work analyzing all these different things. And we then had the frame where, I forget which frame it is, where Patty steps on the stick. And we measured the stick at 22 inches. And then actually using the picture of the stick in the, in the Patterson film, we were able to confirm the seven foot three inch measurement proportional with the stick as a ruler. 
So um, we measured the height in two different ways and measured it as seven feet three inches. And Chris Murphy was part of that. And uh, you know, you can accomplish a lot of things if everyone else takes the credit. You know, that's, that's the rule of life, right there. You can accomplish great things as long as everyone else takes the credit. And that's certainly true in the world of Bigfoot, indeed, indeed. But yeah, DeHinden was a was a fascinating character. Um, he seemed to he believed they were people and not apes. Really? Yes. I had no idea. Yes, he did. And uh, he he wasn't sure. Like a I don't know if the Hinden really believed anything, but he he leaned that way. He leaned to they were people, not apes. So he took great exception with Grover Krantz and John Green, who were always portraying them as apes. You know, the ape in the woods thing, and Hinden really, really took exception to that, and thought and battled those guys his entire life over that point. And they would, you know, have screaming public displays of their of their hate for each other. Yeah, I was going to ask, what were the things that really ticked off Hinden the most? Oh, that really ticked them off. That ticked them off to no end, and. uh Scientists picked him off. He hmm. thought scientists were vermin, parasites, useless, waste of food. He was just really, really anti, not anti good thinking. You know, he wasn't, he, he was in his own way, he was an intellectual. Hmm. But um, he just thought the whole academic environment modern academia was a worthless you know it was the horribly worthless useless people and so he when we did publish our analysis we had to negotiate with him for months and months and months because Jeff Glickman wanted to publish his study in a peer-reviewed paper and DeHinden absolutely refused to let that study get published in a peer-reviewed paper. He insisted that you could only make 20,000 copies of it, hmm. and it had to be distributed, you know, as is, as a separate thing. And that was the result, was we, DeHinden actually blocked the publication of it in um, peer-reviewed journal because we licensed 20 or 40 frames of the Patterson film in that study from him. So, mm -hmm. yeah, he really meant it. He did not like scientists. He thought they were useless. Yeah, and he, and then there's another thing is one time, another thing about Randy, is one time he said there was a psychological aspect to it. There was an old Bigfoot researcher named Warren Thompson who lived in California, um, who was one of the early guys. And Renee and him were friends. And Renee and Warren Thompson were there once when I was there. And they started talking about the psychological aspects of the 
And I said, wow, you know, that's really interesting. Those guys actually are on the verge of figuring out some pieces of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. That was my opinion. But, uh, you know, they were slightly more open-minded than is generally known, at least. You know, and then the other thing is Renee was my friend. And I was, you know, right up front with how, you know, left field I was. No, really? Yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, Renee... Renee made an exception in my case. Because, you know, I was just as left field as they come, so. Uh, Despite being a scientist. Pardon? Despite being a scientist. Um, well, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, it's all science, really. It, it's all science. It can all be understood with science. Or, well, that that's an interesting question. Can Bigfoot actually be understood with science? I would say not science as we know it today. Science has to advance some more before mm -hmm. science will be able to explain the behavior of Bigfoot. Like yeah. a big feet. I would say it have to advance quite a bit. <laughs> Pardon? I would say it would have to advance quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I think that science has to do some real advancing to figure it out because I'm of the opinion that the puzzling powers that these beings display from time to time are perfectly logically explainable and that science is will understand them one day, but at, at today's level, science can't understand these things and thinks they are impossible. And so they immediately get into this defensive crouch where they're defending the integrity of the scientific method against all ideological thinking. And it's really not a case of that. They're actually jumping to a kind of a defensive crouch that's not necessary. But um, that's my opinion. No, I I actually um, I I like scientists and work with them every day, and have uh, I'm surrounded by them every day. And they're wonderful people, and they all, um, you know, we talk, you know, they all think that, you know, they're, yeah, I don't hide what I think. I'm not really ashamed of it at all. You know, I just basically, probably they all look at me as a little crazy, but fortunately, where I, every day I hang out with a bunch of Indians also, because mm -hmm. the place I work is Indians, scientific Indians, scientists and scientist Indians, and lawyers and police. And, um, you know, it's, I'm one of the gang. <laughs> I'm one of them. <laughs> So, 
I uh, fit in. And the, you know, the uh, ism, the rather dichotomy of opinion between what the Indians think about Bigfoot and what white scientists think about Bigfoot is something that I deal with every single day. <laughs> and so it's a uh, it's a it's a healthy uh, tension. Yeah. <laughs> it's good for everybody, I think. And I it's, think that's that's what makes part of what makes you such a interesting person to be talking to is you have you know you're holding these different perspectives and you're somehow you're making them meet. And, uh, yeah, I have. Yeah, I have a different perspective, and they're. Yeah, but they're. You know, they're they're in my in my view. Everybody's got pieces of the puzzle, but they don't have the full answer. And so both sides, both the really hardcore science, hardcore fact-based hypothesis, testable hypotheses, results. You know, the hardcore science guys. And the spiritual native medicine men and elders that are, you know, talking about the spirit beings, they both have a piece of the picture, but they uh, they might not see the connection. <laughs> they might not understand a bigger a bigger picture that includes both of their pictures. And that's what I'm aiming for, is to find that bigger picture that includes both of those pictures as part, part pictures. I think that's really where it's at. But uh, do you have some ideas that can put into words at this point? Or oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have many, many ideas. I have so, you know, I have, um, I... I have a couple of hesitations. Like one thing is this, that um, I've started to keep a lot of secrets myself. I definitely have a lot of ideas and things like that. But one of the things that happens is that you don't really want to tell people about these things because they're not nice enough to handle. You don't want the D-bags to gain power without acquiring the requisite compassion. One has to attend the school of hard, hard knocks and really live life in order to become a truly compassionate, empathetic creature. And so there's, we're bombarded these days with stories of all these people that go out and they gain great power with no compassion. You know, they find a magic book or a magic lamp with a genie or whatever it is, you know, and all, or they figure out some code decryption thing that gives them great power with no compassion. I don't think it works that way. I actually think you have to, if you're going to, knowledge is power. And if you're going to gain great knowledge and great power, you have to have the accompanying emotional and spiritual growth. Without that, it's like good. So I'm really comfortable with people proceeding at their own rate in the topic of Bigfoot, because I think everybody has to go at their own rate in dealing with what they're going to find down at the end of the road. 
because it's so weird that um, that's the thing is I know that if the, the closer and closer people get to Bigfoot, the weirder and weirder it's going to be for them. And their minds are going to have to expand. They're going to have to grow up quite a bit in order to just comprehend what they're seeing and what's going on. And I feel that is the way. So that's where my hesitation always comes from. I don't want to just tell everybody the answers, you know, hey, hey, look, I figured out this and this and this, and, you know, aren't I cool, you know? But um, I think it's more like people have to actually pay the full admission price themselves. And in going through that process, they'll become much more compassionate with all living things. And then they'll be much in a much better position to understand what Bigfoot is and what they're doing and what their role is in nature, what's going on. And I don't mean to just be a total spiritual weirdo, but the thing is, is that, um, sure, I mean, I can, I can, well, take for example, them turning invisible. There are many theories about how can they turn invisible? And I think that what the physics are that are behind it that are not known by scientists today are that this place that we live is vibrating at a very, very high frequency. And our awareness is vibrating at a very, very high frequency. Our awareness is actually a, uh, well, it's basically the end result is everything is blinking on and off really, really fast. You know, in the quantum level of reality, an atom is here, and then it's not here, and then it's here again, and then it's not here. And it blinks in and out of existence, <clears throat> you know, nanoseconds, how many times a second, I don't know. But you can observe this phenomenon when you take an electron picture of a hydrogen atom. Because when you take the picture of a hydrogen atom, the electron that is flying around the neutron, because it just has one, forms eight distinctive shapes. And there's eight phase states of the electron atom, no matter how many pictures of the hydrogen atom that you take. You only find the electron in these eight different shapes. You never get the electron in transition between those shapes. There's never an in-between. There's only those eight states. And so what I think that illustrates, which science as we know it today does not think, is that awareness is blinking on and off really, really, really fast. And so is the hydrogen atom. And that they're actually in phase with each other. In other words, 
we and the hydrogen atom and every atom are blinking on and off at the exact same time. We're cool. like a laser beam. We're complete. It's like the matrix. We're all blinking on and off super duper duper fast, but it's perfectly aligned everything with each other. So back to why Bigfoot turns invisible. So given this as the physical structure surrounding us and them, it seems that Bigfoot is able to vary the frequency that they blink on and off at, that their awareness blinks on and off at, because they appear to have conscious control of their subconscious mind. We do not appear to have conscious control of our subconscious mind. Our subconscious mind is beyond our conscious control. And I think it's in the subconscious mind where these, this um, basically like a movie film of frames, a frame with a frame rate blinking on and off, the subconscious is knitting it all together into a smooth contoured reality that we experience. So we're seeing like the analog reality with our eyes. We don't see it blinking on and off because our subconscious mind assembles all the still photos into a movie for us. And so the Bigfoot can change the rate that its awareness is blinking on and off. And when it does that, it can still be here in the exact same three dimensions we are but can't see it anymore because it's not in phase with everything else. And it can also, it becomes frictionless in all dimensions for that creature. And so not only does it turn invisible, but it can move through solid matter in that state where it's blinking on and off at a different rate because I think they can vary they have variable speed control. We don't have variable speed control in the terms of our frequency that our awareness is blinking on and off at. So there you have a an example mm, of how I think that the eventually, if you really get close to Bigfoot, Big Feet, whatever, the whatever you want to call them. I, I use the Chinook term, Seattle, quite a bit. That's, that's the local term where, where we are here in Oregon and Washington from the old days. And, um, and there is something that science can't explain it now, but when you get close to them, you'll have, you'll have to confront their ability to turn invisible sooner or later with your own eyes, so to speak, you will have to confront this because if you actually get close to big feet, in my opinion, you eventually see they do that. And you're gonna <coughs> you're gonna witness it. And then you're gonna really be thrown for a loop as you try to explain how that happened. Well that was a weirdly satisfying answer. <laughs> 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 oh, good, <laughs> good, because that's a um, that's an example of of yeah how 
how I think it's going to go. That's an example of, well, you know, I think everybody's going to agree about that one day. <laughs> but, but it's a long, long way off. You know, I'll be a lone voice in the wilderness for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've heard some things similar to that, even on spoken by a fairly conventional I'm sure. Well yeah, there's a lot of a lot of ideas are in the air. They're in the ether right now, you know. I I kind of feel um better about talking these days because I think I can be more forthcoming about the pieces of the puzzle I understand. I still have a lot to learn. Questions keep piling up, but I've just, you know, I just got the sense as I see all kinds of people struggling with similar things, and I see that uh, um, kooky Bigfoot people are not as shunned as they were, <laughs> or maybe they are. I don't know, you know, but it just seems there's more of them. There's a whole bunch of. Uh, touchy-feely, you know, blue crystal Bigfoot people these days. What, what do you think of Last Writer? Oh, well, you know, I've been called the, the new Jack Lapsaritis, which I'm really not comfortable with. <laughs> um, I, Lapsaritis, you know, he's an old guy. He's been around forever. He's been doing this. I used to think I've gone through a uh, a series of stages with lapsaritis. In the beginning, I kind of just thought he was some kind of shyster con man, ex-CIA spook, just you know, been in shit, <laughs> trying to get chicks and make money. Um, but. That was just my first impression. <laughs> then, um, you know, everything he said, I said, well, you know, yeah, maybe, you know, like I, I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't offending me. Anything he said, kind of like, I could go, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, you know I kind of get that. Um, and then I. I never really liked the uh, the degree of self-absorption that uh, Mr. Lapsaritis displays from time to time. I guess we're all guilty of that. <laughs> he he, uh, he really uh, he can really get on your nerves with the uh, you know he's the he's the your connection with the Bigfoot people and oh, yeah. you know he can be he'll be your go between between the Bigfoot people and him and he's the greatest so you know that always sounds just bugged the crap like the out of Doctor Greer of the Bigfoot. You know that basically struck me like some old you know you know Zeus worshiper or something you know it just it just got on my nerves. But then, over time, you know, 
I read his books, you know, and I said, yeah, you know. And then he was always so, um, you know, uh, he also annoyed me because he he was so quick to represent his Native American authenticity, <laughs> which that always is a red flag with me. You know, that's a big red sure. flag. I'm always like, wow, man, you know. Yeah, I'm not a real Indian, but I, I'm the hired help, you know. And, you know, and he was, he's a healer and everything like this. And so, you know, and then I had some friends go visit him, friends, people I really trust. And sure enough, when they walked up on his front porch, Bigfoot, like, just, like, ducked around the side of the house and went in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there really were big feet hanging around his house, like a whole bunch of them, the whole time my friend visited there. And I realized that, you know, that Lapsuritis was having his own experience, that, you know, he he was, in fact, communicating with some of these guys, and they were having some communications. and. It can sort of drive you crazy a little bit, you know. I mean, it can really uh, be a bit of the heavy going. And so I forgave him his, his, uh, you know, egomaniacal, megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal uh, tendencies. <laughs> and I said, you know, he's uh, Jack's actually a good guy. He's actually trying to do the right thing. And I realized that he was, he was, he is trying to do the right thing and basically teach people about the psychic abilities of these guys and, you know, his own, he's actually, you know, he's trying, trying to do the right thing. And um, what more can a guy be? You know, I mean, that's not so bad. So, yeah, I, I don't... Um, I I got interviewed by him once on his radio show, and it was really a terrible interview because he just talked. It was actually Jack talking about what he thought, <laughs> 90%. And it was hard to get a word in edgewise. And he he kind of already had decided he knew what I thought. And he didn't. And he was, the 10% of the time he actually let me speak, I was saying, no, Jack, no, no, I don't think that. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he was like, just like plowing on, you know, like, rah, 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 well, you know, rah, rah, rah. And I was like, no, Jack, I don't think that either, no. And uh, so he's a very domineering guy in that interview way <laughs> I don't think he's the best kind of like me <laughs> no no he's not really a good interviewer he doesn't he doesn't make you comfortable and bring you out he he really just kind of like uh, uses you as just a tool to uh, you know build this huge thought edifice of justification and you're like wow <laughs> All right, let's take Somehow a feel used. 
<laughs> let's take a uh, turn and let's talk about Moneymaker if you feel like you have anything to say about oh, him. Oh, Moneymaker. Yeah, Moneymaker. Everyone, hey, you know, he's he's living the dream, I, I think. Is, living you know, his dream, at least. Well, I my opinion about Moneymaker is probably different than anybody else. Because um, this moneymaker is living his dream, as far as I can tell, and now he has to accept the consequences of living with his dream. The um, the thing is, is that like that last interview when I told you the story of Walt Bigfoot, the Usenet News Group, and Silas Salmonberry and myself splitting off and form, forming the serious Bigfoot group, Research. yeah. Um, we met people like Moneymaker right about then. That's when I met him, mm-hmm. which is about 93, online. He was already obsessed. Well, there was a, in the early 70s, like 72, 3, there was a real surge of Bigfoot interest in California and Ohio. And there was a whole bunch of people that started to, you know, have clubs and newsletters and stuff. And Moneymaker was one of those people that he went through that that earlier excitement period, early 70s. And so we met him, and I met him, and he had like a recording from Ohio, one of those PAL recordings that he probably still... I hopefully he's got some new ones, but um, I helped teach him about the internet and the web. I was a web evangelist, so I gave him a subdirectory on my website for him to start the BFRO in, and he had his own little subdirectory that he could control as a website within my website and then he was a control freak and like we all are and he said well you know i'm going to go split off and do my own thing and i said okay great here you go you know and i taught him how to do everything at least at first but you know he i also taught the subtler lessons which was at that moment in history 93 i had all these Bigfoot websites that I was sort of the Mandarin behind. And there were only 500 websites, period, (laughs) in the world. And like four of them were like Bigfoot websites that I (laughs) had made. (laughs) And so we had a large market share when it came to, you know, clicks. And funding... I had funding to look for Bigfoot. I had $5 million. I was making movies as the narrative character in different Bigfoot movies as I became the go-to media point man for Bigfoot. Much as Moneymaker is today, I would say. He's sort of the go-to guy that the first stop that media goes to when there's a Bigfoot story, you know. 
And so I was in that position where I said, wow, okay, so National Geographic called me when they wanted to do a story, and actually I told them to go to hell. <laughs> but that was because I was getting sick of it. And um, the modern Bigfoot surge of interest was just beginning. And I was the go-to guy. I'd made six Bigfoot movies. And um, I said, you know, I don't want to do this with my life. <laughs> I uh, just wanted to understand what was going on. And I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be the go-to guy for Bigfoot spokesman, go-to Bigfoot spokesman. And I think Moneymaker did. I think he did want to be the switch. He once told me he wanted to be like a telephone switch, putting people together and connecting people from like a hub. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he really wanted to, you know, live the Bigfoot dream of getting funding to look for Bigfoot and getting all kinds of media attention and making movies, you know. And I, he could not understand my own, he doesn't trust me at all. And um, he couldn't actually understand my motivations, I don't think, because they were just so foreign to him. But I just like, I just said, fuck this, gave it all up, shut down all my websites, gave away my mailing lists, you know, just did everything. Mm -hmm. And I seeded a lot of things, you know, I gave away databases of things and I had a huge boxes full of uh, interviews with witnesses because I had, I had, um, once gone out into the field with Bigfoot Research Project and helped them gather the interviews on 435 Bigfoot sightings where we made these poor people all across Oregon and Washington fill out these really incredibly lengthy questionnaires. We had different questionnaires for whether they found a footprint or whether they heard a sound or a smell or saw Bigfoot, we had all these different special questionnaires for each type of Bigfoot event. And um, I had boxes and boxes of this stuff, and I gave it all to Autumn Williams. <laughs> and I said, here you go, hey, you seem like a good egg. And um, Bobby Short, I gave her my mailing list. And she started that Bigfoot newsletter that she sent out. She started with the mailing list I gave her. And I, I played a role all over. You know, I got Moneymaker started, like I said, but just with the web stuff. He was into the Bigfoot thing for 10, 20 years before that. Like I said, he, he was in the early 70s excited bunch, you know, he was, he was one of those people, but, um, yeah, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that, uh, at 
Bob Gimlin's um, I guess it was like a it was like a barbecue or something. It was up in Yakima, Washington. It was a big honor Bob Gimlin party where all these people came to honor Bob Gimlin. And Moneymaker was there, and I actually set up a little tent and was selling my little books because I had I actually still had copies of my book at that point for sale. And I had never met Moneymaker in person. And there he was. And we were six feet from each other, face to face. And I said, hi, that moneymaker. And he just froze me out and didn't say anything. He just stared at me. And then he turned and walked off. And I said, wow, that's not what I expected. <laughs> what was that all about? Yeah, I'm like, really, I'm like, wow, you know. Now, I leave out things like, over the years, I got kicked off the BFRO 10 times. Okay. So <laughs> Moneymaker actually had, would let me join and then kick me off, and then let me join and then kick me off. <laughs> and this happened 10 times I got kicked off. So, you know, because I've always strongly differed in opinions with him. And um, that has never changed. And there's certain profound things that I've really, you know, differed with him from the beginning. For example, in the very, very, very beginning, we made this database of the Bigfoot Research Project with these 435 sighting reports that we made everybody fill out the questionnaires for. We put them all in a database. We had GPS coordinates for everything. We had this whole thing for Oregon and Washington only. And we were wrestling with the idea of putting it on the web. And I was like, yeah, let's put it on the web. And then we had a board meeting and we decided that the board decided that we weren't gonna put a public database out there because that would encourage and assist hoaxers to hoax us. And so we didn't wanna facilitate hoaxing, so we weren't gonna do it. And so Moneymaker stepped right into the vacuum, and he was like, well, I'll do it, man. And I had a separate little crappy little, um, couldn't even call it a database. It was a flat file. It was a single table. And I had a questionnaire, online questionnaire, where you could tell your story, and then it would add a record to this table so that basically this table was, the results of all the people who filled out the questionnaire online. And so I started gathering all reports online and there was, as you know, there, were, there, were, there was a, a pent-up uh, reservoir of those stories waiting to come out. And so I started to, I immediately had a few hundred, three, four hundred. And Moneymaker, though, stepped right in there and was like, well, I'm gonna set up this database, the BFRO, and so he did. and he set up this whole sighting report thing and this database and, and the Bigfoot Research Project, then the board switched their mind around. They said, well, somebody's gonna do it, then you know, we'll endorse Moneymaker's 
database as the official database of our project. You know, of course, that was just who cared. Moneymaker didn't give a crap about that. But the board said, you know, so, so we'll support that database of citing reports. And um, I was, right about then, I was also basically going, well, what's the point of this anyhow? <laughs> This is just nonsense. This is a fool's errand. What a nonsense thing. Why do I want to convince anybody else about anything? I just want to understand what's going on. And yeah. that's when I basically took another path. I took another left turn and said, well, I'm going to figure out what's going on. I'll let all these people just talk about it. And so, uh, you know, it, it's been one of, the, you know, one of the other things that I was argued about in the beginning, and I lost this argument with Moneymaker in the very, very beginning, was that I said it wasn't scientific to make any kind of subjective judgment on the citing report. That experiences are experiences. They are not, and they never rise to the level of scientific proof. It's a fool's errand to try to make an experience rise to the level of scientific proof. It's just stupid. Yeah. And so you should not apply any criterion whatsoever if you're going to do science. You know, look for patterns and look for, look for truth, look for testable hypotheses. You're not going to be able to do any of that <coughs> if you screw with the data set by making it go through the subjective judgment filter, the class A and class B stuff and the class C and all that stuff. And, and they filter out all the, you know, interesting things. And then in the world of information theory, which I don't know if it's information theory, but um, it turns out that if something happens once, it has the most information. And if something happens all the time, every day, it has very little information. You don't learn much new from things that happen again and again and again and again and again. But you do learn lots of new things from something that just happens once or twice. But that means that really, if you want to study the body of citing reports, the outliers are going to be where all the information is. And that just was like I lost that argument. <laughs> you know, I, I feel that Moneymaker didn't understand the point I was trying to make. But, uh, yeah, well, we just argued about everything anyhow, so it's just another one of those arguments. But I just thought it was really a bad idea to do this whole um, – credibility rating <clears throat> on people's experiences. I still think it's just another waste of time. You know, it's like, hey, they're either lying or not. You, you don't know. That's what an experience is. Right. Are they, you know, you, you, usually if you spend time with them or if you, or if you meet them, right after their Bigfoot encounter. You can tell that they're telling the truth because they're really shook up. 
if if they just had an encounter, they're usually really shook up, and you can just tell from their vibe that they're telling the truth. And then other times, you know, you meet people that, you know, as you get to know them, you realize that they're they're not carried away with fantasy, and they don't have any uh, incredible desire to uh, persuade you. <laughs> You know, and you also get a sense that people sometimes, once you get to know people, you can tell if they were, you can usually tell if they're telling the truth or not. And I'm not saying, you know, you know, shouldn't look for, for hard evidence, but in the world of sighting reports, that's not where you're really going to find much hard evidence. I mean, there's things like that stick I told you about, Sandin, where, you know, okay, there was some hard evidence that came from a a picture from, you know, a movie. But, uh, you know, Moneymaker's an interesting character. I think he really is, uh, you know, he's happy as a clam doing, you know, he's, well, he knew to Hendon. And see, he's focused on the business side of things. And he knew the, um, he was really good at, there was a point where he knew everybody. There wasn't every there wasn't as many as today. You might still know everybody. But there was maybe four or five hundred active researchers and he knew them all. And so did I. I knew them all. And he was really good at spotting like kooks, because he had histories with all the kooks. Because all the kooks had had hit him before, and he had a lot of experience with, with, with identifying sort of the dangerous ones. <laughs> he had an excellent, uh, he had excellent screwball radar. Is what I'm trying to say. He really, he and he had, um, he'd been around it so long that he like had experience with, you know, Ivan Marks and some of the really early really, you know, wacko, not that they're really wacko at all, but um, some of those guys would uh, hoax things and then try to make money off them. And, you know, some of those really early ones like Paul Freeman, Paul Freeman tried to sell me a, a Bigfoot movie once. That was like, it was just unbelievable. How bad it was. Do you think Paul Freeman had a, a legitimate experience at some point and he just got into the attention of it? Or Well, the thing about Freeman, see, is that I got, once I got to know Freeman, I realized he was actually, he was actually, he had had a lot of experiences. But this one time he, he, tried to sell me this movie that was like completely laughably bad. You know, I mean, Blob Scratch doesn't even got it. It was just this blurry, screwy, costumey, terrible fucking thing. And I was really insulted. Really, really I was. And I thought Freeman's a super asshole. And then um, later... I met him again, and it was kind of a fresh start, and I got to know him and stuff, and I realized that, no, he had, um, he had, 
made all these tracks. He had all those track casts that formed a basis for Meldrum's cast collection. Because the, I forget the name of those people that <clears throat> paid 2000 bucks and bought all of Freeman's casts off him, track casts, and then made that cast collection available to Meldrum. But there were some people that did that, and they were real. You know, they were actually, you know, the real thing. And Freeman used to go up Mill Creek out by Walla Walla in the Blue Mountains. <clears throat> and I've, um, I've spent a lot of time out there myself. And I realized that, yeah, you know, he would go up the Mill Creek watershed and have all kinds of strange encounters up there. I've come to understand that there's there is a number of Sasquatch that still live up there. And yeah, I go out in that area a lot up in the blues and um yeah, there Mill Creek watershed's a pretty uh, nice place to hang out. So um yeah, I came to realize that Freeman was actually an interesting guy. And another thing is that he had this line that he would say that I thought was really good, which was, he'd go, you know, if you ever run into a Sasquatch, you're in for a shock. <laughs> <laughs> that used to always crack me up. But, um, yeah, like Lapsoritis, like over time I came to actually, like, have some respect for him and and kind of realize that he... He was trying to do the right thing, too, in his own weird way. You know, much like lapsuritis. But, uh, you know, I came to understand, yeah, you know, he's trying to do the right thing. It looks pretty weird from the outside. <laughs> you know, it really does. But, uh, yeah, those, some of those old guys. Well, what what can you tell us about? Burn. I mean, uh, oh, Peter. Uh, he had some surprises for us before he passed. Oh, Peter. Away. Well, you know, Peter. I'm, <laughs> I, um, uh, boy, I love the old. I'm still fond of the old guy, but you know, the, uh, um, where do I begin? Yeah, for some reason. <laughs> I freak Peter out nowadays. Nowadays, if I'm ever at the same place he is. Oh, I guess I thought he, I thought he passed away, so I just want to... Pardon? I, I guess I thought he passed away for some reason, so I just... Uh, let, me just <laughs> let me just take that back. Okay. No, I just freak him out really bad. And um, <clears throat> Peter's 89. just turned 89. And he lives in Pacific City, and... Uh, you know, he got busted last year for tax evasion. Yeah. And actually, all the money that we paid him was the money he didn't pay taxes on for the whole Bigfoot research project from 93 to 98 when he got fired. And he holds me partially responsible for that, or maybe entirely responsible. But I want to just state for the record, I was not responsible for Peter getting fired. But um, he, that's one of those, <laughs> I burned my bridges with burn. <laughs> ah, ha, ha. Um, 
because we made him sign a 10-year non-disclosure, non-compete agreement where he could not be involved in the Bigfoot community for 10 years and do any kind of competitive Bigfoot research with us. He was out of the game. And we gave him a, a big bonus, whatever you want to call it, the uh, severance package. He had to sign this agreement that he wouldn't compete with us for 10 years. And then we gave him a lump sum and said, get out of here. Um, so anyhow, that has colored my relationship with Peter ever since. And then there was this, you know, but the thing is, is that actually Peter is the one that talked me into all this crap. <laughs> so, you know, that's the thing. He was the one that, you know, he... He had his, you know, jungle hat and his ascot, and he came zooming up in a Jeep, you know, looking like uh, Luana Jim from one of those Tarzan movies. <laughs> and he was talking, you know, quoting Tennyson, to seek, to strive, to find, you know, and I'm just like, holy shit, you know. Okay, let's go. <laughs> okay, you lead, I'll follow. Let's go. Come on. So, uh, you know, he was a striking figure, and um, and yeah, he said swoop me up, and I was doing consulting, computer consulting for the Bigfoot Research Project. Like, he invited me to join the board of advisors. You know, and I just was like, oh boy, you know. Peter, Peter, Peter. But then as I got to know him, I realized that he has his flaws. <laughs> yes. I and I should not disparage the old man, but, you know, I could understand that uh, he really had some, uh, you know, like all human beings, some positives, some negatives. One of those was that Revealed by that tax thing, you know, um, Peter, God, I shouldn't, see, this is one of those things where I should not say what I know. <laughs> that's, that's fine. <laughs> okay, he, I'll say one part of it. Tom Slick and Peter, back in the 50s, when they were searching for the Yeti in the, the Slick expedition to Nepal in, I believe, 57, what actually Tom Slick and Peter were doing back then when they were young guys um, was drinking excessively, hard drinking and partying and chasing women all over Southeast Asia in search of the fabled sideways vagina. They had heard that there was Asian women that had a sideways vagina and that they were going to find those women. And so they just went 
romping all across Southeast Asia, chasing chicks and drinking. And the whole search for the Yeti thing was basically like their cover story. (laughs) (laughs) This is is their line anyway, that's right. So, you know, of course... You know, in 59, that's why Peter was brought in to Bluff Creek by Tom Slick. And where all the bad blood started because John Green and DeHinden, the Canadians, were down at Bluff Creek checking out Gary Cruz's story and everything like that. And that first, you know, pre-Patterson film Bluff Creek stuff. And uh, Tom Slick said, well, I want... I want my friend Peter to come in here and run the project. And so he brought Peter in to supervise Hinden and Green. And they were like, the idea of some Brit supervising these two Canadians just didn't sit right with them. And they just thought. And then Green realized that Peter was a drunken, partying, woman-chasing madman. And (laughs) he was like, this fucking guy is the boss? Not this guy. So um, that's where the bad blood comes from, actually, and um, between those guys. And, you know, Peter's, Peter's, he's one of, he's, to call Peter a con man is an insult. He's one of the great grifters of all time. And he... Starting as a young man, would just be the concubine of incredibly rich women that would just dote on him and support him. And Doris Duke, the richest woman in the world, Peter was her young plaything for like years. Hmm. And Peter, woman after woman, Peter would find women rich women to just support him one after another after another up till the present day he's 89 years old and he's got a woman that's 30 years younger than him rich supporting him I think she married him too it's um she hates me (laughs) her name is Kathy he hates me. Um, but uh, I I kind of have a perverse appreciation for a guy who can just, like, live to 89 years old, bunging off of rich, rich chicks that are younger than him. I'm just like, wow. Dude, you are like the master. <laughs> You know, know. (laughs) other people might think you're like a horrible person or a con man, but I'm just in awe. (laughs) Peter doesn't understand that about me. I'm like, no, man, you're the the master of all time. No one, (laughs) no one is in the arena with you. You know, you're just like on another league beyond everything. (laughs) 
So, like, did, did Peter, does Peter Byrne have an authentic interest in oh, yeah. finding Bigfoot? And I mean, did yeah, he put I mean, in he, a lot of time? Well, that's the thing is that on that level, I would say it's somewhere around 17 years of his life he was paid to look for Bigfoot. And I think it drove him crazy, the whole search for Bigfoot actually drove him a little nuts. But yeah, he had a real interest in it. He too was a believer that it was a business. And, you know, that's the corrupting thing. Right. Money is always, you know, money above everything corrupts. So um, he, uh, he, uh, the, uh, the, the materialist philosophy, uh, was well, materialist philosophically as well. As yeah, he, he was, he would present a version of events most likely to get funding. He would tell stories and really work with the accepted beliefs that people had. In other words, he really is a master. Mm -hmm. And so he really knew how to work with what people expected and fit all his stories into so that people would think it was plausible. Plausibility. He's really quite amazing at, you know, creating a plausible scenario for his approach and everything else, which is really a gift. But you know, there comes a time where you realize that if you're going to actually try to understand what's going on, it's not going to go in this direction that's really convenient for marketing. <laughs> and so, you know, Moneymaker's guilty of that now, too, where he's just like, he just has it, you know, he just presents the um, party line. Uh -huh. And although I was shocked, I heard from somebody recently that he, or no, it was the skeptical woman there said something about the Indians think they're spirits and he's thinking that they're spirits too or something. I was kind of like, what? What? What's the world coming to? Those people actually saying something like that? But, um, yeah, you know, I, I've always thought that moneymakers fighting a series of losing battles, that there's time is not on his side. And one day, a lot of his cherished opinions will crumble beneath the weight of uh, experience, yes. But yeah, he does shape a lot of things, I think, to get maximum funding and, you know, storylines. <laughs> you know, he's he's really into the he's into the story of looking for big yeah. Not really hmm. <laughs> not really, you know, he's not really into uh well, yeah, he's he's not on a track where he's gonna figure much out anytime soon. That's yeah. for sure. Although I was impressed that he, another one of those things I, arguments I've had with him for 21 years is, or 
or so, 21 years ago, I said, light comes out of their eyes. They actually have eyes that light up. It's not the tapetum lucidum. It's not the reflection of your light in their eyes. Their eyes actually light up. And he just thought I was totally crazy. He was completely hostile. And, you know, he pulled every kind of, you know, kicked me out of the BFRO for saying that publicly, you know, <laughs> the usual. And um, I heard he just said that himself. Uh. And I was, I was kind of like, what's the world coming to? <laughs> Matt Moneymaker actually growing a little bit. He's actually learning. Oh my God! What's you, the world coming to? Did you, had you really, made that? I, I did not expect him to ever reverse track on that one. Right. No, I mean that seems to be being to be accepted too. Kind of. Yeah, which of, amazes uh, me. You know, really, 21 years ago, I was, I was going, hey, you know. Wait a minute, you're all wrong. Eyes light up. And um, now I have company. Not, not so agreed, like, why that is, of course. But. I have my theories. You know, I think that what my theory is simple, actually. I think that one of the, one of the, Abilities, one of the fundamental abilities that these guys have, that these beings have, is they can focus energy with their minds. And there's a lot of puzzling phenomenon associated with them <coughs> that illustrate this, which I won't get into right now. but. Pardon me, one of the side effects of this ability to focus energy with their minds <coughs> is that they, when they do it, sometimes their eyes light up. There's actually like biocosmic energy, which That's actually, pretty, uh, pretty cool. actually creates the light that you see coming out of their eyes. It's actually like their brains are lighting up. Hmm. And the thing is, is that I had a private conversation with Moneymaker 21 years ago where he described seeing their heads lit, light up one night in Ohio. And I said, wow, you've seen it too. And I knew at that time there were not that many of us, and I was pleased. But his approach was much more, no, you can't say that to people because, you know, conventional materialistic science says that that is impossible. And people's present understanding of things says that that's impossible. But, um, you know, and the funding, funding goes away. <laughs> Nobody wants to fund that. They want to fund genetic research. Ooh. 
how there. I hope I have <laughs> talked about moneymaker. Yeah, I think we. Yeah, I don't think anyone else moneymaker. has the same view of moneymaker as I do. Although maybe you know, over time people will. Yes, I'm. I'm shocked though. Like I, I'm really. I'm impressed that he's displaying growth yeah. in the area of Bigfoot. His Bigfoot, the camp that he's in with Bigfoot, that is. You know, but yeah, I think he's living the dream. Good for him. It's not a dream I have. <laughs> well, let's let's end on uh, Green, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Little to say about him. Green? Green, yeah. Well, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for him. He, uh, he and I had a funny exchange when we met. We met in 1998 at the Sasquatch Symposium at the University of British Columbia. And I, he was kidding around with me because I was saying, well, you know, I got everybody started on the Internet with all these Bigfoot websites. He's like, you're the one. You're the one that started all these Bigfoot things on the web. Yeah. And I said, hey, you wrote The Apes Among Us. I mean, you're actually the one that got everybody started. <laughs> the Apes right. Among Us was that, that book that got everybody hooked, you know. Everybody's running around gathering sighting reports and trying to understand the patterns. <laughs> you're the one. He's like, you're the one that put it on the Internet. You're the one that did it. <laughs> That's so, hilarious. <laughs> it was actually hilarious. But, um, yeah, he's always been a hardcore ape camp, you know. And um, he and Krantz were... Pretty yeah, Krantz were just a hardcore gigantic. You know, Krantz would always pull out that same stupid skull in every interview. <laughs> yeah. Look at look at this gigantopithecus skull. I just happen to have on my desk. Um. Yeah. Well, they they were just hardcore. But you see that that difference of opinion is deeper than a simple difference of opinion because. If it's an ape, then it's a regular animal. Then you can just treat it like a regular animal, and you can shoot it, and you can do this, and you can do that, and you can expect its behavior is like other animals. And so you can use classic conventional techniques to find an animal, and you can search yeah. the animal, and it's just like any other animal. Or if it's a person, then it's not a science problem. It's an intelligence problem. Uh, and you have to gather intelligence about the other intelligence. Uh, so if it's intelligent like you, then it's not even a science problem. It's it's an intelligence issue. And right. You have to gather intelligence, and, and you can't make that same assumption that it's it's just like the other animals, and it's going to behave like other animals. And and you can't make any of those assumptions that it's gonna. You can expect everything to be just like other animals and you know yeah. all of a sudden all of your assumptions change from top to right. bottom because they have to be smarter than us 
on some level. So on some level, they clearly are smarter than us. We can't find them. Right. <laughs> they're smarter. We know than they're there. Military. Some of us know they're there, and have encountered them, and know that they exist. Yet we can't go to their house. You know. So where do they live? You know, it's um, it's like that, and so they must be quite intelligent, and we must gather intelligence about them. If we assume they're an intelligent species like us, then it's not like looking for an animal at all. It's like spying on the Russians. It's a whole different thing, and. And that's really the kind of thing I think it is. So that's yeah. where I think Green got off on the wrong track a long time ago. But on the other hand, he he did so many things right. I mean, we all owe him a lot. He made the yep. first sighting report database. I tried to get access to it for years. But because I was associated with Peter Byrne and he hated Peter Byrne, he wouldn't let me have access to it. Now I actually have a copy of it, you know, in modern times, because Green has offered up his database to everybody. But um, back in the day, man, he would, and whenever I would talk to him, he'd just try to tell me that Peter Byrne was a huge asshole and a con man and a thief and a criminal and a dirtbag. And so. <laughs> You're like, I know. I'm like, yeah, so what? <laughs> you know? How can you how can you help him? I'm like, well, I like him. I like him, you know. He's like really, whatever, you know. He's such a scum, you know. Green just really even at eighty. It sounds like jealousy to me. Yeah, well that's the thing is he Peter Byrne could get more funding, got more funding to look for Bigfoot than anybody. And there was a lot of jealousy in that because Peter played the part. He played the part. He he mm -hmm. presented the myth, you know, of the great white hunter. Yeah, in Nepal, Being tall or, but not very dashing. You know, like really kind of like from the 19th and 20th century. You know, the big safari guy. You know yeah. who? You know British. In the days of the Raj and the British Empire, you know, and just, the yeah. thing is, is that he, as a result, just the money flowed to him and the opportunities flowed to him. And, you know, I think That's he made like 35 Bigfoot movies. And weird. So I'm, Green my hated that because Peter just was a showman. Uh, and, yeah. And Green just was like, no, he's not as serious. He's just a fucking jerk off. Womanizing drunk, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but you know, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> get over it. It's not so bad, but you know, he so anyhow would never give me the so you know, but I didn't hold that against him or anything like that because he uh, yeah he's John Green, you know, he's the legend. He yeah he he didn't. Uh, I think he did distinguish me from Peter Byrne eventually. One should have, 
you know, I mean, I was, yes, because I was actually, you know, worthy of being treated as a different individual. But yeah, I could understand, he had a point to make, which was, he just couldn't stand Peter. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure he had a lot of, you know, I mean, I understood all of what he was saying. Peter, um, Peter also had some, well, he had some other flaws, let's say, you know, but I, I'm not running him down. The thing is, is that now Peter's old, he's 89, and he can't, his memory is not as sharp as it used to be, and he can't keep his own story straight. And so he's vulnerable, and he's never been vulnerable before, and that's part of why I freak him out, because he knows that I, after hearing him in modern times tell his stories, at the end of his stories, you know, I might, I could, if I was an asshole, I could go, wait a minute, that didn't happen in 57, that happened in 58. And that was with so-and-so, not with so-and-so. And you did this, and then you did this later. You did that after you did the other thing. And because um, I've studied his whole life so much <laughs> as just a scholar that uh, – and, I've, and th I've had many, many late nights drinking scotch with him until dawn, you know. And, um, and so – I think that makes him really nervous that he knows on some level that, you know, I could pull his pants down metaphorically and go, look, you can't actually tell your own stories anymore. You're getting too old. You can't remember them. Um, not, I would never do that, though. I have manners. <laughs> I am a nice person. I don't feel like it. I, like, I have a fond place for the old man, Bill. You know, <clears throat> the last time you saw him? Bill. I think that the subject of searching for Bigfoot can really drive you crazy because it's so weird. <laughs> you know, as you wrap your mind around it, like over time, it it um it shakes you to the core. You know, you know it's wrong, and you start going, "Oh boy." What what what's up? What's down? I don't understand anything anymore. There's a real there's a real um, period of uh, you know. Well, let's just say I'd say understanding Bigfoot detours close to the madhouse as you proceed down the road of understanding Bigfoot. And some of us detour and get off at the madhouse. <laughs> Hey, you know, just what happened. You're talking about folks that get out there in the field or just anybody that... Yeah, people that are out in the field. Out in the field is where you're likely to have a lot of, you know, events and things like that. I mean, that's the thing is I... It, it, um, I I got to a point where I was of the opinion that the forest giants, as it were, 
really didn't want to have anything to do with us at this time. We're really annoyed, basically, by us, mostly. And then in modern times, it seems that attitudes have changed, and they're really interacting a lot more with people. And lots of people are having experiences, and lots of people are having encounters, and lots of people are seeing or smelling or hearing or finding tracks, and, you know, people are out there, and even people that go on moneymakers expeditions are having actual encounters. And so I'm like, wow, it's like the attitude changed, and they're, they're, they're liking people more. <laughs> or they're more tolerant of people, or a little more, uh, yeah, a little more jocular and interactive, and you know, they don't, they, they're, uh, I don't know what changed, but it seems like they're just friendlier and they're not as standoffish. But that, I don't know, you know, I don't know, but what it Matthew. seems like, because there's so many people now that are, you know having their own, uh, well, I'm just amazed at how many people are out there going, um, <laughs> having real adventures with the big feet. Right. Can I ask you a weird question that, uh, sure. I mean, it could take us in a different direction, but, uh, have you heard of the concept uh, tulpa. I mean, it's it's basically the same as like a thought form. Yeah, the um, isn't that like Buddhist Nepalese? Yeah, it's one of those. It's <laughs> something close to that, I'm sure. Isn't um, it like isn't it like like they're like knives or whatever, or little little oh. No, I think you're thinking of another word, but uh, the, tol the tulpa is just like something, something created from the mind. I think in some some of these uh, Tibetan mystics, Buddhist mystics, would be able to create uh, like um, quarters or something when they need to go up a mountain. You know, like they create uh, someone to carry their shit for them. Oh wow! Uh, and then they dissolve it once they got to the top of the mountain. <clears throat> and uh, so this this uh, concept tulpa has sometimes been applied to different things in the so-called paranormal world as a possibility. Like there's some some in some way these things are created from the uh, you know the Jung's. Uh, collective consciousness or something along those lines, you know, like and I was going to ask you if you think there's any of that in the field of Bigfoot. Uh, if there's an aspect of Bigfoot that is, you know, from the minds of the humans. Well, uh, I, you know, no. <laughs> the short answer, no. Okay. I think that, um, Human minds have nothing to do with it, hardly. Um, That's refreshing. It, well, let's say, 
we could say the mass hallucination uh, theory or explanation too is one version of that. But um, no, I I think it's what I was saying. My camp that I'm in is more like they can focus energy with their minds. The true power of their subconscious mind is available to their conscious mind. And for us, that only happens rarely. And, you know, like when we're at the moment we're falling asleep, the moment we're waking up, there's a moment where our conscious mind can influence or control our subconscious mind. But I think that they're generally able to do that. They're, you know, this may be an ability mm -hmm. that we used to have that has fallen out of use. Because they do appear to be related to us. Yeah, okay, that's what I was going to ask. And I, I think they're, they're hominids. I think they're, you know, they're related to us. Mm -hmm. But I think that what they can do with their minds may be something that we too can do with our minds or that we used to be able to do or that maybe, you know, generations from now we'll be able to do again. I'm not sure how it works. But I do think that, you know, what they have conscious control of, we don't have conscious control of. It's like we have a collective unconscious. We human beings, you know, we have, we have that. They seem to have a collective conscience, which basically makes mm -hmm. like their minds different than our minds, uh, but similar enough that we can communicate. You know, that's the thing is that we are related. I'm sure we're very related on a lot of levels. And one of the things I've noticed is that when you're standing really near one, the feeling you get is like your limbic system recognizes them. You know, your your lizard brain mm -hmm. is perfectly aware of who and what this other person is. <laughs> your conscious might not be really aware, but your subconscious is really aware. <laughs> of who, you know, and is familiar with. Your subconscious is familiar with them. Your conscious is not. And so, um, yeah, I think it's more like that. I don't think it's like they're product of man's um, imagination or psychic powers. Mm -hmm. I think they're actually really psychically well-endowed in general. Some of them. Some of them are. I'm not sure if all of them are because that's one of those, there seems to be a continuum of smart ones and dumb ones mm -hmm. relatively, you know. And um, I guess the ones I've encountered have mostly been smart. And um, their psychic powers really were powerful. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Like, I, I don't, I wasn't in their league in terms of uh, of psychic power. They had a 500 watt amp there, and I had like a little five watt crystal radio. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, 
So I don't think it's us. I think that's one of the things is that it's it's them. They're uh, well, in my opinion, they're the brains of the earth. They're actually the people of the earth, and they're the brains. And we're the people of the earth. We're the caretakers. We're basically the caretakers, but they're the brains of the operation. So I think actually when you encounter one, if you ever do stand right next to one, you'll realize one of you is smarter than the other, and you'll realize which one is smarter than the other. Hmm. And you won't even have to even say anything to figure that out. You'll feel it. Yeah. That's what I say is, you know, when you actually stand next to one, you'll feel it in your head and you'll go, oh, wow. <laughs> I might not be the smartest one standing here. <laughs> so um, it's like Paul Freeman said, you're in for a shock. Okay. And uh, that that's one of the things that I day is down the road, people will approach that at their own rate. I think, you know, they can, they can scoff at me today and say, you're an idiot, crazy Henry, with your crazy theories, but I think I'll have the last laugh if they live long enough, you know, I mean, and are destined to figure stuff out, they'll eventually go, wow, wow, Henry, you were right all along. <laughs> Oh, and I'll gloat. I'll gloat and gloat. I'll go, yes, that's right. That's right. I was right all along, you guys. Yes, man. No gloating. Gloating is not classy. But, um, yeah, you know, I, that's what I think. But, yeah, the thing is, is that um, I think they have the mental power to look like a tree and to just basically like shapeshift, for lack of a better word. That's some ninja shit right there. Like, like the thought form, you know, somehow under conscious power, they can actually look like a tree. And like, <clears throat> and I mean, you can touch it. It looks like a tree. It's a tree. You're like Damn. a tree. And I actually learned this from a four-year-old at first. As a four-year-old kept telling me, well, told me a story about the elk people would come visit her in her cabin in the woods, and then they would turn into trees. <laughs> and I was like, wow, really? Little kid, you know, babies. They don't have filters yet. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. And then I met an Indian later who said, uh, count the trees, count the trees. Count the trees. You walk down a trail, just count the trees, and then when you walk back, count the trees. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's interesting. And then over time, I came to actually understand that I don't know how they do it. 
but I bet you there is a logical scientific explanation for it that I don't understand. That's where I think that, you know, there is, I don't know what it is, but apparently they can do that. And maybe we can too, you know. I mean, that's the thing about them is you learn a lot about yourself and about human possibilities as you kind of see what's possible for them. It really, uh, it really changes you. Well, Henry, <clears throat> it's like I could keep on asking you questions uh, forever, and I keep thinking of more questions as, as you talk. Well, perhaps it's, yes, you've got me on a talkative, loquacious evening where I was home alone, wife's in uh, Boston, so I, uh, yes, I was just here with my cats, and uh, it felt like talking, <laughs> so it was a good good time. So, but thank you very much for interviewing me and uh, talking to me about all this. Where letting me just go off and yeah, well, if you're, on. if you're willing to natter on again, uh, I would love to, you know, expand on this and that in the future. Sure, sure, yeah, you know, you know, I mean, it's I'm always afraid that I'm going to be deathly boring, but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I, uh, I would say in a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I need some time, I need some time. No, a couple weeks. I need to think about what you said already. (laughs) I actually have to, I have to get some work done. (laughs) Yeah, me as well. But uh, that's like I can release some some of this and uh, wonderful. Um, well, I'm yeah. glad you liked it. And I'll let yeah. you know no, where I, that goes. Would, yes, I'm, I know that I'm, and well, the one thing about Bigfoot is you can decide how you want to approach it, and that's what I hope to communicate to others is that then that's kind of the real legend of Moneymaker is that. Really, moneymaker doesn't matter. You can approach it how you want to approach it. Moneymaker is just one approach. Mm-hmm. It may seem popular, but you know, it's not really a good approach even. It, it's not the approach where you're going to learn the most. Right. That's for sure. In my, yeah, my humble opinion. Anyhow, good talking to you. I'll um, likewise look forward to talking soon. And yeah, give me a couple weeks. To, oh, uh, sure, get yeah. over having talked so much. <laughs> <laughs> I need to absorb what you said, and uh, um, yeah, that would be yeah. Sometime in the future, we'll talk again, and uh, maybe uh, until you run up against, uh, you know, when once you feel like you all you have left is secrets, then we could <laughs> stop talking. But uh, well, you know, I'm, um. I'm still in the early stages of writing another book, and oh, good. part of what I want to do is uh, things I have to say have a lot of moving parts and have a, you know, are not good for sound bites. Mm-hmm. Some of the things I have to explain are like I have to explain this over here and that over there and this over here and the, to show people the 
thing I'm actually trying to explain, you know, and uh, it really doesn't lend itself to the narrative interview form. So I really want to write, I have these ideas screaming in my head that all need to be put down in some organized fashion. And I've been working on it a long time, and I haven't gotten very far because I always tear up everything I write and uh, have not been satisfied. Although I'm beginning to find, I think, a way in that will work. So, so anyhow, on that note, we will talk soon. Yeah. Uh, is there a way that people can get your uh, first book? Or? Oh, sure. On my website, henryfranzoni.com, you can order PDFs on CD-ROM for 10 bucks. Nice. You know, it's, uh, yeah, my first book is there. And... Um, www.henryfranzoni.com and uh, that spirit is named In the Spirit of Siatko yeah. is the name of my first book. And I I say, I, I pull out some of my thoughts in that book. I show, I show some of my cards, but not all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will show more cards in the next book, yes. So, anyhow. All right. On that note, Take care. Thank and you so much. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Bye.